Hello, this is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology. Welcome you to this podcast that I believe is prescient, and I think you will find both informative and interesting. As I'm doing this interview at home to conform to social isolation, I hope all are doing well and staying healthy in these unusual times as a result of the SARS-CoV-2 virus pandemic. Today, I'm pleased to have as my guest, Drs. Randy Cron and William Chatham from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. They are the authors of an article entitled, The Rheumatologist's Role in COVID-19. This article is available at the website of the Journal of Rheumatology, which is jroom.org. So, Randy and Wynn, thank you for joining me and taking time for your busy schedules. First, I was wondering if you could briefly summarize the findings in your article. I can start out and, and Wynn can chime in. Uh, you know, since the early reports coming out of China, uh, both some of the clinical features, but primarily a lot of the laboratory features um, and the patients they were reporting on with hospitalizable sick COVID-19 infections uh, appeared to have um, cytokine storm syndrome. Uh, and this included uh, elevated serum ferritins, elevated soluble CD25, the IL-2 receptor alpha chain, uh, elevated liver enzymes, coagulopathic features, D-dimers, elevated LDH. Uh, and these patients, some of them were going on to multi-organ failure in addition to developing acute respiratory distress syndrome. And so it made sense to us that as rheumatologists, we should, number one, be helping to diagnose cytokine storm syndrome if it's part of what's going on with hospitalized patients with COVID-19, and then potentially what could we offer in terms of therapy. Yeah, and I would just add that this uh, pattern of what's seen has been seen with previous viral epidemics. It's a similar pattern that was seen with the Ebola outbreak. Uh, as well as the previous uh, coronavirus outbreaks with SARS and MERS. So similar patterns have been seen in these other viruses that have had significant morbidity and mortality. So the footprints of cytokine storm were there as, for those syndromes as well as other syndromes in which other situations where we see the syndrome. So it's uh, very high likelihood that that's what's going on with a lot of the uh, severely ill current coronavirus patients. Makes sense and really answers part of the other question of why you felt this was important to be recognized early. Um, in your article, you said once hospitalized, some patients' death can occur within a few days. And as you said, it was from ARDS and multi organ failure. So, what's your hypothesis for this particular virus? Uh, you had mentioned some other viruses, but what do you think is going on here? Because it you know, you said some, but certainly not all viruses do this. Well, the question is why this, you know, why would we be seeing this with this particular virus? And uh, unknown at this point, but uh, with the Ebola virus, we knew that that virus tended to preferentially infect macrophages and dendritic cells and could trigger uh, significant cytokine release by those cell populations. And that's probably why this was seen, or one of the major reasons this was probably seen uh, in patients with infected with Ebola. Now, what the mechanism is with the COVID-19 virus, we're not sure. 
I mean, it's possible that when the virus infects these cells in the lung that they're the angiotensin converting enzyme on their surface. Uh, perhaps when the virus enters those cells, similar mechanisms might be engaged to where uh, those cells or ones adjacent to them might be elaborating lots of cytokines. But uh, the exact mechanism behind why these viruses induce this uh, still hasn't been elucidated, either with the SARS, MERS epidemics, or thus far with this one. I think it's also important to point out, as we're learning as we go with this virus, that this has features of, of some of our more familiar cytokine storm syndromes, including macrophage activation syndrome, which we see in our lupus patients or our still disease patients, for example, but it's not identical. Uh, it does really target the lungs in a bad way, and maybe that's because it goes deep into the lung uh, to start. And, it, and even ferritin values, which are clearly elevated in the thousands, tend not to be in the tens or hundreds of thousands. And maybe that's because they suffer the, the lung disease so much initially, they don't get that far. Um, but some of them clearly develop multi-organ failure. And there's now some evidence that maybe up to 15% have significant central nervous system involvement that's likely associated with the cytokine storm as well. As you said, there are certain features that we're familiar with, with most more common rheumatic diseases leading to what we call MAS. But I guess that's just semantics. We were used to MAS, cytokine storm. But my next question really is, um, so who should be screened? Is it a, How do you decide who should be screened? What's your recommendations of the initial screening test? I think, you know, screening early is going to be important. And early to me means the instant someone thinks you're sick enough to be hospitalized. And I realize that's a moving target in the current day when our hospitals are being overwhelmed in some places. Um, but if you're generally sick enough to be hospitalized, I think you need to be screened at that point and hopefully treated early enough if it looks like you have a cytokine storm. And a simple, I mean, people are going to likely get a complete blood count and you can look for lymphopenia, which seems to be really common in this particular outbreak, as well as a trend towards thrombocytopenia. It may not be there in the initial one, but it tends to drop like we see in other cytokine storms. But I think the serum ferritin value, uh, anything essentially over six or 700 is kind of our guess cutoff of should get your attention in nanograms per milliliter, uh, you know, should wake you up. And then at that point, you know, you're going to get other labs that are help, help confirm or deny your suspicion for a cytokine storm. And those will include things like D-dimers, uh, lactate dehydrogenase, um, fibrinogen levels, liver enzymes, uh, to name a few. And these patients also have a very high CRP as well. So that's oftentimes can be a tip-off as well. It's not specific for cytokine storm syndrome. But if you see CRP levels greater than 150, 200, I think uh, you start worrying. So you want to test it can be turned around quite quickly. Uh, and I think uh, certainly the LDHD dimer CRP, most hospitals can do a ferritin uh, on a same day basis. So if you, if you get that combination of labs back, then I think uh, the likelihood of this being present uh, tends to be fairly high. Um, in your article, you do list different diagnostic criteria for cytokine storms because they all differ. I think one of the errors that we make and are imposed upon us, however you want to put it, 
is that they don't meet the criteria for the classic HLH, which is, a, again, the classic one associated with a genetic defect with cytokine storm. Um, and I think it is very important. Um, you mentioned something about an ferritin to ESR ratio. And the other thing I want you to comment on, certainly on the internet and other places, there's rumors that the ferritin isn't sky high, like 20, 30, 40, 100,000. Would you like to comment on that? Sure. Uh, the ferritin to sedimentation rate ratio uh, has come up in a couple of papers now. Uh, because the ferritin tends to climb as you're getting sicker with the cytokine storm. And the erythrocyte sedimentation rate may start out high because you're clearly inflamed. And one of the drivers of that is fibrinogen binding to the red cells to make them fall quicker. But if there's a coagulopathic process that's going on, which there typically is, and why we see elevated D-dimers, for example, then the fibrinogen gets consumed and therefore the sedimentation rate starts to drop. Uh, so a, a ratio, and no one knows what the cutoff will be for COVID-19, uh, and you could probably just go with the ferritin alone to tell you the truth at this point, um, but a ratio certainly over 20 would get my attention, uh, but may, the, the threshold may be even lower than that. Yeah, and to the point you made earlier, the, uh, the criteria don't necessarily apply to uh, all, across all different diseases. So there's criteria for cytokine storm in patients that have systemic onset GIA that are fairly well validated. Uh, those criteria may not be equally applicable to cytokine storms triggered by viral infections. Uh, there's the H-score, which uh, is a little bit more broad in terms of applicability, but again, uh, when those criteria were developed, uh, the population was a bit heavily more weighted toward patients that had underlying malignancies. And some of the points aren't, that are assigned to that score involve tests and pathology findings that are, you can't turn around real quickly when you're trying to evaluate a patient that can be critically ill and deteriorate quite quickly in a 24 to 48-hour time frame, as is being seen with some of these patients. So uh, coming up with some adaptive criteria may help. Uh, and some of the you know, reviews we've done here over the years, applying some adaptation to the HLH 2004 criteria uh, may be helpful in terms of uh, a useful algorithm to identify these patients, where if you have fever, hyperferritinemia, and perhaps uh, three of either thrombocytopenia, leukopenia, or LDH, or elevated D-dimer, or ASTLT elevations, uh, then that's a, that can often be a useful criteria that's fairly sensitive and specific for identifying these patients. Thank you. I really want to um, for the listeners to read the article, and especially there's a table that does outline different criteria, and I think the point is high index of suspicion and don't be rigid. Would you agree with that? Yeah. So this leads to a very related question, is how do you decide when, so now you have a high index of suspicion, you'd use your secondary tests. How do you decide when and who and what treat patients? Three-part question. Well, order once or individually? I think the patients we, well, our goal here is to try to keep patients from progressing to where they have to go on a ventilator. So 
you know, the best outcome in this disease is if we can intervene with something that is shown to be effective eventually that will keep patients from having to go into such severe respiratory failure where they have to go on a ventilator. Because once we know that happens, their mortality is going to be quite high. Uh, so I think, again, the key is identifying them early. And if they, you have a patient where these markers are elevated, suggestive of cytokine storm, and you see that their respiratory status is continuing to deteriorate over the first 24 to 40 hours that they're in the hospital, that's when you need to intervene. You don't want to wait until they're on death's door, or you don't want to wait till they're uh, having to go on a ventilator. I think if, if we're going to intervene and it to be meaningfully helpful, we need to do it early. Yeah, I think that's clear. And and the part of the problem is, you know, we don't know what's going to be best treatment for them. And and I'll, I'll just point out, this doesn't uh, mean you can't treat the virus itself as well. I mean, if we if we find out there's an antiviral therapy, great. But still, you got to treat the cytokine storm if if that's occurring. Um, and we don't have the answer at this point. We know where we think we know what works for other cytokine storms, or at least what have been reported to work for other cytokine storms. And whether it will work for this particular viral infection is, is unknown. And there are ongoing clinical trials, thank goodness, and hopefully we learn sooner than later from them. But it's very tough when the patient is in front of you and, and they're not enrolled in a clinical trial to realize they have a cytokine storm and do nothing. So that's that's the, the rock and the hard place that we're currently in. Yeah, hopefully trials, uh, unfortunately, they've had plenty of patients that are eligible for this type of intervention in terms of the trial criteria that were designed in Italy. But uh, those trials have filled up and enrolled quite quickly, and we're hoping we'll get some outcome measures to look at various interventions, whether it's blocking interleukin-1 with anakinra, whether it's blocking IL-6 with tocilizumab or cerilumab that targets the actual cytokine, or whether targeting interferon gamma uh, with imipalumab uh, are you know, helpful interventions. So we're hoping that we'll get some result or readouts from those within the next four to six weeks. So uh, two final questions, and I'll ask you to sum up what you like. So you mentioned the three types of therapy, and you mentioned four to six weeks. But what would you do, University of Alabama, today or tomorrow? Because, you, you know, you're watching them, and they're progressing, and they're not quite on a ventilator. And this, or they're getting near there. And as you pointed out, this is when you want to intervene. I'm going to put you on a spot and you can refuse to answer if you want, because I know it's speculative. I think we all know that this is best guess. And we know gamma is hard to get. Anti-gamma is just a harder drug to get than blocking IL-1 or IL-6, which would be more readily available. Do you have any preferences or leave it up to person's personal experience or any comments or do you want to decline? <laughs> Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it, one and uh, part of it is, you know, at a lot of these institutions, not certainly not everybody, but a lot of institutions have ongoing clinical trials, and so you have to kind of defer to those that are ongoing at the time, whether they're antiviral or not. Um, but for the patients who don't meet criteria for that, hopefully we can get them in another clinical trial. I mean, Dr. Chan and I have a fair amount of experience with IL-1 blockade using recombinant human interleukin-1 receptor antagonist or antikinra. Um, and so that would kind of be our bias, but we don't know for this virus if IL-1 is going to be central. My guess is it, it probably will be. 
and there's other reasons specifically to like that agent. Uh, it's a recombinant human protein, so that's a good start. It's got a lot of safety data from its trials in RA, where it turned out not to be the greatest drug for rheumatoid arthritis, but we have a lot of pretty favorable safety data with that. It's got a, um, a short half-life of about four to six hours, and so even if it was causing harm, it's gone if you need to get it off. Um, and it tends to work fast, so and it's got a very big therapeutic window, uh, including a lot of safety in that window. It's it's worked for um, uh, even sepsis patients. When you retrospectively go back and look at sepsis trials and and bring out the patients who have features of cytokine storm, uh, amongst those sepsis patients, it helped their survival. So there's a lot of good reasons that that particular drug, if it turns out to work would be something to consider. Yeah, I think most of the uh, reported experience thus far in terms of whether these therapies are effective to come out of China with their use of tocilizumab. Uh, I think that was chosen as the intervention when the Chinese physicians suspected this was going on because they noted that some of those patients had elevated IL-6 levels. Uh, plus, I think that's the main intervention that they had access to. I'm not sure there's access to interleukin-1 inhibitors in China. At least there wasn't as of two years ago, the last time I was there and had spoken on, on this topic with them about just uh, cytokine storm syndrome in general. So uh, tocilizumab may be effective, uh, whether it's as effective and safe as IL-1 blockade, uh, hopefully some of these trials that are going to be resulting out of Italy will let us know in the not-too-distant future. Thank you. Yeah, I think we all agree that you should enter patients into trials because we have to know, and I think the point you made, whether it is pure antiviral, antiviral with or without a cytokine blockade, and we really don't know which one. I think that's our encouragement. So on that note, is there any final messages you'd like to leave with our listeners? And then we'll just, I'll just give my one, my one liner that I, I've been pushing for a while, and, and that is we have to treat not only the virus, and we don't even know if we have effective therapy. Hopefully, we end up having something that proves useful, but we have to treat the patient's immune response to the virus if that's what's harming the patient. Yeah, I would, I would concur with that. I think the, the point of emphasis is, is to think about this early when these patients are admitted. Uh, if there's option to get them into a trial where we can answer some of these questions with these interventions, that's great. But if the patient doesn't have access to that option where you are and the patient is clearly continuing to deteriorate with these markers, and I think uh, you know, offering this option, whether it's with IL-1 blockade or IL-6 blockade, is certainly uh, something that should be strongly considered. Because again, the outcome, we all want these patients to survive, but we also want them to survive with some meaningful quality of life. And once you've been on a ventilator for a week or two, even if you get off, uh, that can be suspect. So uh, the goal needs to get these patients stabilized, get their disease under better control, whether it's immunologic and or virologic, and uh, try to forestall them having to go on mechanical ventilation. Thank you. So to me, I learned a lot. I hope our listeners did. And really, the take-home message from my point of view is early recognition. Get on top of it. Use the drug you're comfortable with. But first of all, enter patients into a trial because we have to get the answer. And hopefully, we will have an answer out of, from Italy and directing it even better. 
So on that note, I really want to thank you for the time and I encourage everybody to uh, who's listened to this to please read the article by Drs. Cron and Chatham as they expand upon these issues and do give a really nice table of different therapies. And the again, it is at jroom.org. So again, thank you and keep healthy.